I'm Matt Peterson, and this is The Present Past from The Atlantic. On this show, we compare two snapshots in time, the old story and the new story, and we talk about where we go from here. One of the big themes on this show has been the ways that the theories of the 1990s still echo in our politics. And today's old story gets right to the heart of that, so I'm really excited to get into it. I am in Washington, D.C. today with Charles Kenny. Charles is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. I am going to pigeonhole him by saying he is something of an optimist when it comes to the course of human development. And that makes him the perfect person to reread what is inarguably the most pessimistic story from the Atlantic in the mid-90s, probably the most pessimistic story we've ever published. Uh, It is Robert D. Kaplan's The Coming Anarchy from February 1994. Uh, This story was famously passed around Bill Clinton's White House, and Kaplan eventually turned it into a book. It's a complicated story, but the thesis essentially is that States aren't as strong as we think, and they're going to be torn apart by fights over resources, the environment, and identities. Kaplan went to Sierra Leone, which was in the middle of a civil war in the 90s, and he warned that what happened to West Africa could happen to the rest of the world. Here's what he wrote. Sierra Leone is a microcosm of what is occurring, albeit in a more tempered and gradual manner, throughout West Africa and much of the underdeveloped world. The withering away of central governments, the rise of tribal and regional domains, the unchecked spread of disease, and the growing pervasiveness of war. Let's see what Charles Kenny has to say about that. Hi, Charles. Hello. So you tweeted recently about the story. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it. And you said, no country is stuck in a Malthusian trap and resource conflicts are declining. So let's start there. What is a Malthusian trap and why aren't countries stuck in it? So... Kaplan is, is strong on, on Malthus. He says that population growth is one of the big forces that's going to you know, push a whole bunch of countries further into poverty, um, including in Africa. And a Malthusian trap is basically the idea that there's a, a, a limited amount of land, and if you put more people on the same land, they're going to produce less and less food for each additional person. And so eventually, they'll start starving. And that's how you have populations kept in control over history. Um, it's the way that rabbits keep in, uh, their populations in control. Too many rabbits, they start dying out. Same principle with people, said Malthus. Same principle with uh, people, said Kaplan, basically. And so he predicted that we were going to start seeing huge famines uh, across uh, West Africa and then around the world um, uh, over the decades after he wrote the piece. Um, we haven't. Uh, and it's great news that we haven't. Um, in, indeed, uh, the number of people dying in, in famines has, has been dropping. Uh, it was much higher in the 60s uh, and the 70s, and it's been since then. Um, uh, about 1.5 million people died of famine in the 1990s when Kaplan was writing. Uh, this decade, it's about 225,000. That's 225,000 too many people. But the trend is away from people dying in famine because there isn't just enough food. And that's for two big reasons. One is we've got a lot better at producing more food on the same land. But the other is the global trade in food. Basically, in order to have a famine somewhere in the world nowadays, you have to forcibly create it. You have to stop food coming in from elsewhere. You have to be a really nasty autocrat. Luckily, we've got a few fewer of them than we had uh, when Kaplan was writing. Um, And so, you know, that too has been a huge force in making sure that nobody starves to death as a result of Malthusian pressure. 
So, so we're talking about food here primarily, and he definitely talks about food in the story. He also talks about sort of resources more generally, environmental resources, right? And I imagine that you could make the same argument about, he does make the same argument essentially about water and other fundamentals of life. Is, is this the same analysis apply to them? I mean, are we not, are countries not running out of water because they can trade it in the same way that they're not running out of food because of global economics? So I, I think Kaplan deserves credit for um, bringing in the environmental angle at a time when not very many people thinking about international relations were thinking uh, as much about the environment as they do now. Um, I do think there are certain areas of the world where we really are seeing water pressure. I mean, we're seeing it in California, for goodness sake, but um, you know, other, other, other parts of the world as well. One huge force, again, against that becoming a reason for famine is the fact that we can move food around. And basically, moving food is moving water, right? 90% uh, of global freshwater use is for agriculture. When you grow crops, uh, uh, you are putting water into them. And then if you trade the crops, uh, the water moves with, if you will. So yes, trade is a, a powerful force for dealing with the problem of water. Uh, water scarcity in some areas um, when we have plenty of water in, in much of the rest of the world. More broadly on resources, and the, st the story is fascinating, right? I mean, we've been worried about running out of stuff for ages. You know, peak oil has been a concern since way before Kaplan uh, uh, wrote this essay. Um, we keep on discovering new sources of oil, and we keep on discovering new ways to get at the oil that we know is there. So that the problem today is not that we think we're going to run out of oil. It's that if we took all the oil we know how to get out of the ground, out of the ground, we'd fry the planet. Um, and I think you know the climate change issue is a really serious global issue. There are some people who would you know argue that uh, we're already seeing climate change being one factor uh, in some of the continued violence that we see uh, worldwide. Um, so I think that's a, a real issue. It's not that there's nothing there. It's that Kaplan was very wrong about the scale of the problem and the immediacy of the problem. The idea that we would be running out of resources in you know the next few decades doesn't seem to be playing out. The idea that the uh, you know, we're going to run out of water on such a great scale, or the climate is going to change so dramatically that in the next few decades, we would see the kind of global collapse he talks about a bit overplayed. Yeah. Um, the One of the sort of underlying theories in the story is about some relationship between poverty and violence. And I think this is an idea that has hold on the popular imagination. What what evidence is there of a of a relationship between between poverty and war in general? So if you look sort of across countries, uh, poorer countries tend to have higher rates of various different kinds of violence. They tend to see more people dying in homicides. They tend to see more civil wars. Um, and if you want the one best predictor of is your country going to collapse into a civil war, it is poverty. Um, so I think there, there is a strong link there. Um, and of course, it goes in both directions, right? Um, civil wars are not good for economic growth. Uh, they are they are a, a cause of poverty. The, the, the good news is on both sides of that picture that um, over the last uh, uh, 25 years, we've seen a declining number of people dying in civil wars. Until recently, I should say, the, the Syrian conflict has been incredibly bloody and has brought us back up to the kind of levels of violence we were seeing around when Kaplan was writing. But that is still dramatically lower than we were seeing during the Cold War or, or previous periods. Um, so 
broadly, we're seeing a, a, a more peaceful planet uh, in in sense of, of number of people dying in civil wars. We're also seeing massive progress against global poverty. Um, you know, just over the last 25 years, it's almost a two-thirds drop in the number of people who are living on less than $1.90 a day. Um, uh, just a lot fewer really, really, really poor people worldwide and a lot more people who are, you know, actually reasonably well off, not in U.S. terms, but in global terms, you know, if you think of a global middle class as being above $10 a day, a lot more people kind of uh, getting into that kind of wealth. And that's a good thing for uh, uh, lots of reasons, right? It's a good thing for development. Uh, we all want more money, but it's also a, a, a good thing for reduced violence. It's not the only thing. And if you look at terror in particular, the, the link between terrorism and, and, and levels of income is pretty much not there. So it's not that it deals with all forms of violence. And clearly the US is in global terms, quite a violent country and also in global terms, quite a rich country. So you know, there are lots of other factors going on. But to the extent that income is one of the drivers in reduced violence, it's probably one of the reasons we're seeing reduced violence. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned Syria and also sort of implicit in what you're talking about is China, right? And, and so the connection that I'm drawing between those two places is strong states, strong institutions, right? The, his Kaplan story doesn't really talk about, his story is about how states break down. One of the, the big stories we're seeing uh, over international politics in that period is that powerful political institutions can do big, important things, right? And some of those big, important things are terrible <laughs> in the Syrian war, right? right? But you also have China using the power of the state to bring lots of people out of poverty while simultaneously, you know, being an authoritarian state that's bad for lots of people. Um, this, like, this kind of power of institutions seems to be a big piece of what is missing in the Kaplan story. Is that... I, I guess so. I mean, uh, Kaplan is very strong on the role of uh, ethnic conflict in breaking countries apart. Um, I mean, you know, the list of countries that he has that are going to fall apart is a long one. Uh, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, India, Pakistan, China, Canada was going to collapse. Uh, the United States, I think, he he, he points to as well um, as having its best days in the 1960s and it being downhill since then. Um, so I think... Um, you know, there's a long uh, uh, academic literature linking ethnic cleavages with weaker states, but there's a lot more to the story than that. I mean, and indeed, again, the relationship goes two ways. Um, uh, uh, you know, France is a country with two, three hundred different cheeses, partially because it, it, it is made up of what used to be a lot of separate cultures, uh, which you know came together over time um, to form what I think most people would consider a fairly strong, successful state. Um, so we're seeing that kind of progress happening, institutions strengthening, um, ethnic cleavages becoming less of an issue, which is not to say they've gone away, um, but I think they are not seen as a driving force. And so I think you're right that that uh, Kaplan kind of focused on one side of the story. He, he focused on, on what are the forces that might tear things down. Well, there are those forces, but there are also these forces that seem quite capable of keeping things together most of the time in most places. Um, and that includes institutions which do appear to be strengthening worldwide. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to poverty for a second. So one of the theses in the story, um, he talks a lot about slums and urban poverty and sort of what that does to people. And let me read you a quote. He says, whereas rural poverty is age old and almost a normal part of the social fabric, urban poverty is socially destabilizing. How, how does that idea hold up? So 
if it was true that a, a lot more urbanization necessarily led to a lot more political instability, uh, the last 25 years would have been pretty grim. Right. We've seen massive urbanization worldwide, you know, even in places that aren't seeing very much economic growth. So uh, 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 you know, Africa urbanized a lot in the uh, 80s and 90s when it wasn't growing very fast. Uh, so there's been this huge move of people into cities. Indeed, we've hit peak rural. There will never be absolutely as many people worldwide living in rural areas as, as there are today. Um, and yet, we seem to be seeing more political stability overall, less less civil war breaking out um, and less damaging civil war. So there's clearly more to the theory than that, which is not to say there's not you know, an element of truth there. I mean, I think anybody who looks at, uh, as it might be, the 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 the, the um, uh, situation in the Middle East over the last few years, it is much easier to get hundreds of thousands of people into Tahrir Square. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, if you're all in the city already and it's a bus ride away, if you will. So I, 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 I get the idea that cities allow for sort of mass political movements in a way that rural areas don't tend to. But, you know, um, that, that really only has to be part of the story because there is so much else going on. You know, China had a huge revolution when most people were rural. Uh, Russia had a huge uh, revolution when most people were rural. United States had a huge re revolution when most people were rural. Uh, clearly, you can have massive political upset even in a, a, a majority rural pop uh, country. And sort of the same applies in, in, in reverse, that, that um, most of the most stable countries in the world are 90% urban, 80% urban. Yeah. And he, he, in the, well, the stories, the story is mostly about the developing world. True. Um, almost entirely. And is, is there any reason to think that like that urbanization in developing countries is sort of fundamentally different for people in the ways that you're talking about it across that between developed and, and advanced economies? Um, Kaplan does, of course, uh, uh, get in some remarks about the future of the United States uh, uh, and Canada, as I mentioned. So it's not, uh, he, he seems to think we're all headed for hell in the end. But I, I take your point that most of it is, uh, uh, at least most of the body of a text is, is on developing countries. And there is a reason for thinking that urbanization in developing countries looks different from how it looked in rich countries when they urbanized. Um, partially, as I say, in, in, in Africa in the 80s and 90s, um, you were seeing urbanization without growth. You're now seeing urbanization with growth. Um, the urbanization, I think, is faster than it was in most parts of the rich world when they, they urbanized. Um, but actually, other things... A different sort of in a more positive way. Um, if you look at the the proportion of people in uh, in urban areas of developing countries that have access to electricity or water, and compare it to develop developed rich countries, you know, at the same historical period when they were seeing the same urbanization rates, actually, you'd rather be in a developing country slum today than a developed country uh, slum you know, 150 years ago. Hmm. Now. You know, what's that worth? Uh, both are pretty grim. Uh, uh, I don't think, however, it's fair to say um, that, you know, 
conditions are, are, are in some way worse in, in developing country slums today. Certainly mortality rates are a lot lower than they were in you know Liverpool in the 1830s or, or Birmingham in the 1850s. It, except for the, some of the specific conflict places that he wrote about, Sierra Leone, um, you know, he writes a lot about the Balkans, not as much in this, but in other pieces, you know, places that literally just went through brutal wars right after this. But other than that, look, generally speaking, it is better to be a person in the world today, wherever you are in the world, than it was when he wrote this story. Is that does that sound right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I will say, uh, in, in in Kaplan's defense, if you look at West Africa, um, you know, he was he was right. Obviously, when he was writing, uh, uh, you know, Sierra Leone really was a, a foul, horrible mess. Cote d'Ivoire, um, you know, went through a violent civil war. Um, Liberia was in one until in, until the two thousands. So. If you look specifically at West Africa, actually poverty hasn't changed too much since he wrote. Um, you can't generalize from West Africa, I guess, is the lesson there. Right. That, as you say, if you take the sort of average human being on the planet today and compare them to the average human being on the planet when Kaplan was writing, uh, they are considerably richer. I would guess at least twice uh, as much income per capita. Uh, they are living longer. They are more educated. They are less likely to be shot. Uh, they probably have somewhat better civil and political rights than they had. You know, you can kind of, they're drinking more beer. Uh, you can go on uh, and list your, your measures of, of, of progress and pretty much all of them are pointing in the right direction. Yeah. So he wrote a piece last year, I think November, um, looking back at this story and saying that like, one of the things he was trying to do was puncture people's optimism about the march of democracy. Uh, and that, you know, looking back, he thinks that he was right about this, that, that from the position of the, the early 90s, people were looking around the world and saying like, ah, democracy is, you know, spreading across Eastern Europe, it's going to go everywhere, right? Um, he writes a lot about Francis Fukuyama too, in this and, and in his update. And, and this is a place where he says he thinks he was right. Um, and we're certainly in a moment where people feel more pessimistic about the future of democracy. There's been lots of interesting, you know, opinion surveys in the US and other places about how we feel about democracy. Does this, was he right on that angle? So um, I, I feel sorry for Fukuyama, who after all put uh, a, a question mark on the end of history. Um, uh, but I think Fukuyama himself would say, you know, yeah, things don't look as rosy today as they uh, you know, were looking in the, in the early 90s. So I think that there is something to, to that. Um, we're still actually, if you believe the measures that come out from polity or from uh, Freedom House, I think we're still doing better worldwide than we were in 1993. We have flatlined pretty much since the 2000s. Um, so it is, it is true. The progress hasn't been as fast as you might have predicted if you'd done a trend line from the 90s onward. Um, and I think that's very sad. I would say, though, that if you look at um, polls of people around the world and ask them, you know, is democracy the best system of government? And that remains like 80, 90 percent of people, 80 plus percent of people worldwide, you know, say that's true. If rather than waiting on countries, you wait on people, uh, the number of people living in a broadly democratic state is, has never been higher than it is today. Um, so you know, on some measures of progress, we're still making some progress, even if not not as fast. So yeah, I, 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 I take that. I accept that there is something to a, a slowdown. It's not maybe as dramatic as people currently think it is. 
And the other thing I would say is if that was what this uh, essay was meant to achieve, it may be overshot a little. <laughs> um, one of the metaphors throughout the piece is this idea of, of being in a limousine and the affluent people in the world, it's sort of unclear exactly who he means to be in the limousine, but uh, and we should talk about that. But but he has this metaphor of people being in the limousine and being protected from things like climate change and being outside of the limousine and having to live in the, the sort of world as it actually physically exists. And again, this is a metaphor that I feel like 25 years later feels current, right? Because this idea of you know being in the haves and the have-nots animates a lot of our politics now. Do you think that he is, is he, is that metaphor still the right way to think about the way that the world is working? Well, I mean, there's certainly something to it. Uh, people in the rich world, limousine, if you will, um, uh, are much less likely to suffer catastrophic consequences from climate change, for example. Um, you know, we can afford to build the walls to keep the sea back. Uh, we can afford the air conditioning units. Um, and a we uh, wealth gives you the power to adapt, um, uh, and so I, I think that way it is, you know, a powerful metaphor. The way it breaks down a little is that Kaplan was seeing the world as bifurcating. Um, so he saw it as bifurcated at the time. You know, there were the rich and the rest, uh, and he saw it as that trend continuing and 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 growing. And actually what we've seen is the world going the other way, that if you look at the sort of the global uh, distri distribution of income in the 1990s, there were kind of two peaks, if you will. There was the the peak of the very poor, that China, uh, India, uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and then there was the, the peak, peak of people who lived in rich countries, you know, Europe, United States, Japan, uh, and not very many in between. If you look at global income distribution today, it's a hump. It's a single hump. We've gone from a dromedary to a camel or the other way around. I can never remember how that works. But um, uh, it's a single hump because sort of China's moved to the middle, if you will. But India's moved towards the middle, not as fast as China, but pretty darn fast. Um, large parts of sub-Saharan Africa are thankfully at last moving towards the middle. Um, so we've actually seen the world become much more uh, uh, less unequal from a global scale than it was uh, when uh, Kaplan was writing. And, you know, that's, I think, hugely positive for the quality of life of people in, in poor countries, uh, gives me some hope that they will be more able to adapt to climate change. If that process continues, give me some hope that they will end up, you know, living the kind of lives that we should all get to live, um, including uh, having access to air conditioners if you live somewhere really hot, including hot indoor running water. Um, those things are spreading worldwide, and they have been ever since Kaplan was writing, and I hope they continue to. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like, you know, he's starting from this point of, of scarcity, right? I mean, this is the central argument in the piece is scarcity is going to drive these problems. But if you stop thinking of the world in terms of scarcity, it, it opens up a whole new way of thinking about things. Or Absolutely. Um, so if you look, the World Bank, and many caveats come with this, but the World Bank makes an attempt to come up with what is it uh, that is what are the sources of the world's wealth, if you will? And so it divides it up into natural capital, things like land and oil and forests, um, uh, human capital, things like education um, and ideas, and, and physical capital, things like buildings and roads and factories. And what has happened over time is that the amount of 
our total wealth that is about ideas and education has shot up worldwide to be by far the largest component of, of global wealth. Natural resources is down below 10% of global wealth. These kind of uh, excludable resources where, you know, I get them or you get them and I can stop you having them if I have them. Those resources are less and less important to global wealth, to global income, to global quality of life in, in comparative terms than they used to be. Um, and things that aren't rival and excludable, things like ideas that you and I can share the same idea. We can both do double entry bookkeeping and you doing double entry bookkeeping doesn't stop me doing double entry bookkeeping. Those kind of that, that source of source of capital that source of wealth is far more important now so we've moved from a world which really is about zero sum and you know resource competition and so on to a world which is much more actually about collaboration and cooperation being the way for uh, wealth to grow and i think we kind of need to catch up with that in our international relations thinking if you will mm. we we still we still go back to zero sum you know Who's got more uh, uh, aircraft carriers? Uh, um, who gets access to particular sources of resources? And I'm not saying those aren't issues, but comparatively, they're much less important than they used to be in terms of how do you make for a successful uh, United States? How do you make for a successful China? It is much more these days about cooperation than it is about competition. How much of that move between different kinds of wealth is caused by global institutions by big things like the WTO or, um, you know, the, I don't know, sort of the post-World War II order is the thing that I have in the back of my head, you know, that we all sort of refer to willily. But, <laughs> you, you know, how much of this is, is like deliberate sort of political intention um, versus just the movement of, of natural humanity? So I get the, the big things that states can do individually and collectively – you can be a fairly weak state and really muck things up. You can kill a lot of people. Um, and, and the same, you know, that's true within countries. You can kill, you, you can also start a war that kills a lot of people globally. Um, take strong states to, to do the sort of productive stuff, if you will. Um, the, 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 the making people better off, uh, uh, uh making global trade work. Um, I do think that strong states coming together and, signing trade agreements and um, the right kind of trade agreements, not ones that um, enforce monopolies globally, but actually, you know, allow for greater competition, uh, a greater movement of goods and people and services and so on, um, really is an important factor. I would admit if you forced me to say, you know, is it as important as everything else? I'd say no. Um, and indeed, you know, technology and sort of the, the forces of the market uh, uh, and globalization sort of um, willy-nilly are probably bigger. So the, the classic cases, if you look at which had the bigger impact, all of the uh, global agreements on tariffs and trade that led up to the World Trade Organization or the invention of the container ship, probably the container ship had a bigger impact on, on, on global trade. But GATT and the WTO really mattered too. Um, and so I don't want to give up on them um, because they really are an important part of a story. And I think they're probably a particularly important part of a story when it comes to war. Um, we like to bash on the UN, but there's a fair amount of evidence out there that UN peacekeeping really works. That if you send in a bunch of peacekeepers into a place that might 
combust or has just stopped combusting, uh, it does tend to stop it combusting again. Um, not always. And by golly, UN peacekeeping operations could be better run. But still, you know, it has been a really successful uh, force for reducing uh, um civil war um, and, and warfare in a bunch of places, as has, frankly, just the sort of UN norm that probably moving borders around is is a mistake. I mean, one of the things that hasn't happened since Kaplan's essay, which he was sort of predicting, was a lot of states falling apart, you know, literally falling apart. We've had South Sudan. Um, there is the ongoing you know, Ukraine-Russia uh, 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 standoff. But as a rule, uh, borders have stayed fairly stable since Kaplan wrote. And I think that's a big part of why we've seen less less war too. And the institution of the United Nations has a role in that. Yeah. That's interesting because one of the things that he writes about a lot in the story, he tries to sort of bust people's misconceptions about states and the nation state. You know, he he mentions Benedict Anderson and the idea of the imagined community and sort of where the nation comes from. And he says that like, particularly you look at West Africa, these are places that have, you know, the borders were drawn by, by the previous colonial rulers. He also talks about the Kurds, for instance, which is much more in our minds today in current politics. And like, and on, on a lot of this analysis seems pretty accurate, right? I mean, you know, the, the Kurds really are sort of stuck without a state and it's hard yeah. to see how they'll ever get one just because of the ways that borders have been drawn in the region. Um, and yet states have not, collapsed over mm -hmm. the past 25 years, even though they're just as as made up as Kaplan was saying they were. That's an interesting puzzle. I mean, I guess all states are made up, right? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, it's just how long they've been made up. Um, and people have uh, many different uh, identities. I mean, I, I will say if you, you know, during the Africa's Cup, if you're in an African country, you, you, you get the feeling that there's at least some support for the, uh, for, for the, State uh, in terms of people supporting the, the the home team in 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 the in in the soccer uh, competition. So uh, you know, I, I accept that uh, uh, loyalties to the state in many poorer countries in the world are not as strong, maybe on average, if there is such a thing, uh, as as loyalties to the state um, in in um, Britain or the United States. Uh, but they're still there, um, and I think to some extent they're they're growing. Uh, you know, um, uh, time heals all wounds to some extent. Uh, these artificial things become less artificial over time, purely for having been around a long time. Um, and so, sort of every year that goes past, so almost um, you know, the the risk of state collapse drops it drops just because it hasn't collapsed yet. So if you're going to go back and write an alternate version of this piece, what's what's the headline? His is The Coming Anarchy. What would you give a yours? Oh, gosh. Um, for a start, uh, the title along with the rest of the piece would not be nearly so beautifully written. Um, but what would the title be? Uh, I, you know, The Coming Progress is too there. The Coming Convergence? Um, I, I think it would be much more about... Uh, uh, global progress and and the role of globalization in that uh, progress. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Charles Kenny is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. The old story we're talking about is Robert D. Kaplan's The Coming Anarchy from 1994, and you can read that on theatlantic.com. Charles, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.